In part two, we explore with mystic scholar poet Bruce Alderman, his journey, spiritual practice, and how coming together and doing our work, whatever it might be, opens us up to the power of the universe and the journey of our awakening. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives, and Activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. When we were talking about the the prepositional approach to understanding in a religious relationship and communication, one of the metaphors that I use is what I call taking it from mathematics. It's the knot theory. In knot theory mathematics, they have different theories about how knots are, are made, but one of the objects in knot theory is a wild knot. And a wild knot is a knot that doesn't have any terminus. It just goes forever on. And you can see certain Tibetan illustrations or Celtic knots. They seem to have no final terminus. They just unfold into depth. And to me, that's a good symbol for the human being or a good symbol for a culture where we are these threads of relationship that don't have any final terminus. And that entering into dialogue with each other is to help light up some of these threads and maybe even help us discover places that those threads go that we haven't seen yet, right? And to do that for each other. So in the leadership circle, you know, leadership context, I think that's one thing that we we really need in terms of the challenges of our time of sense-making and the fragmentation of knowledge, the polarizing of perspectives, we really need that kind of of practice of entangled, <laughs> deep listening and the practice of the imperative method. What we're trying to enact in, in you know, what I'm trying to help bring about in, in, in the work that I'm doing right now is, again, not like a typical approach to leadership, though it, it's not that it doesn't have parallels out there also, but a course of study and a course of training and a course of like experiential work where there's multiple things happening. One, there's an opportunity for individuals to to go deep in a contemplative way, to have ongoing contemplative inquiry and practice, and that the, the training program makes room for that and actually encourages that as, as part of the overall curriculum, while at the same time exposing students to widening circles of concern in terms of how our perceptions, even our neurological processes, shape the world, but looking at broadening circles of cultural dynamics and political dynamics and ecological dynamics and religious and spiritual dynamics, and you know even new emerging cosmologies, and how, in a sense, even if you're working in a fairly small context of a startup or something like that, Whatever we're doing right now has so many threads that ripple out in so many dimensions of society that we need both deeper and broader perspectives to help us wrestle with what's confronting us. And one other piece that's part of this is why I think even though 
Ken Wilber's integral theory is not formally part of the training program in terms of there's no texts from Ken Wilber in the program. There's an integral spirit behind it. One way to one way to think about it is a lot of the challenges that confront us right now are hyperobjects. A hyperobject in Timothy Morton's sense is an object that is so large that we can't see it locally. You can't see climate change, right? You can't see kind of global economic crisis or collapse by itself. It doesn't show up here in Walnut Creek, California in a way that I recognize it as that, right? It's distributed across time and space in a way that it demands collective vision for its perception. It demands transdisciplinary practice for us to begin to apprehend what that thing is. We need to be able to see it from the points of view of science and culture, chemistry, and multiple disciplines we have to have to be able to begin to see the outlines and recognize the movement. Evolution is something like that. We don't see evolution happening from an individual local point of view. We only see it as an object that emerges between us out of transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, metatheoretical space holding, right? And so I think to be wise leaders in our time who are able to navigate some of our biggest difficulties, we need to be transdisciplinary and metatheoretical in the scope of our practice and insight in order to be even to have a hope of responding to the complexity. And it doesn't mean that we have to master all the disciplines. It means we have to recognize the, the need for the coordination of, of these different elements. And I think that will invite different ways of practice, different ways of being, different ways of leading, you know, in the face of the hyper objects of the meta crisis. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you're pointing towards a vision of what's required for effective leadership, a very different kind of leadership in which, which responds to the great issues. I'm touched by the breadth of your vision and its appropriateness to the great needs of our time, because we usually think of leadership in terms of business, running businesses, running an organization. And as far as I'm aware, most training programs are directed towards that. And the what you're looking at in leadership and the program you're instituting at uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies, which I think is just starting in later this year and still open if people are interested, is a leadership of much a much bigger kind of leadership. It's a leadership of th that ideally will enable, empower people to serve in the addressing of the great issues of our time, perhaps in the context of their business or you know, presumably in the context of their business or whatever other kind of profession they do. But at least it's providing a large picture context, both large picture in terms of the issues we're dealing with and in the qualities and characteristics and skills and capacities that we need to develop to address them effectively in this time. And I love the fact that your training or your and your vision of, of leadership involves not only a transdisciplinary perspective, which enables us to see and hold and hopefully respond skillfully, but an inner transformation, the kind of contemplative and psychological work 
that are so essential to mature adequately in ways which allows allow us to be effective instruments of service. Yeah, thank you. That's well put. And before I came onto it, that was part of the impetus behind the creation of that program was some people in leadership positions, but who also had gone through some inner transformation through psychedelic practice, through contemplative practice, through their own work over multiple years and found how that inner side of development and work impacted what they were able to do and see and what they cared about and then open them up to basically recognizing the need for a different way of being and doing things. And so that was the initial impetus behind even the starting of this program was that a lot of people in different spaces are, are I think, in their own ways, coming to this kind of insight. And people have been working in different ways. But we don't have many institutions, many generative enclosures, many fields that actually seek to hold and sustain the inner development and the social engagement in a deep way, in a sustained way, that's really looking to grapple with the biggest issues of our time. And so that's you know, I think part of the vision behind this is that to to create a generative enclosure that can allow space for that kind of work, you know, for individuals and in an important way, be a vehicle for them to remain in touch with each other after the program. We want there to be networks growing out of this, a community of practice where the teachers and the students who go through this don't just go through it and leave. They can, of course, if they want, but they become part of a connected community of practice with people from multiple backgrounds and experiences that it can become a kind of alchemical container for collaborative practice and working with different global issues. Beautiful. First, it seems like a bit of a stretch, but as I as I have felt into your vision of leadership for our time and the addressing of the great issues of our time, the kind of training you're offering more and more sounds analogous to or perhaps is a contemporary instantiation in perhaps a humble way, perhaps a profound way, a bit kind of bodhisattva training. Yeah. And and maybe we should just say that uh, bodhisattva is perhaps one of the highest ideals the human mind has ever conceived. It's the aspiration to, I'll put it simply and then expand, to become an optimal instrument of the service and for the welfare and awakening of all conscious creatures. And filling that out a little, it's a commitment to optimize oneself as an instrument of service, that is to actualize and awaken oneself and to develop the skills for becoming an optimal instrument of service so as to serve the highest good of all beings. And that's just a very profound aspiration. And in a way, it seems like that's the direction you're pointing to with uh, your vision of leadership, Bruce. Yeah, I love that. And what I like about the the Bodhisattva ideal is that, you know, when it's really rightly held, it's it's both empowering and self-canceling because in one way, it's asking you to do the impossible, right? So you recognize that in one way, no individual can save all beings, 
but in recognizing the impossibility of being able to save save all beings, but in still using Christian language, a canonic self-emptying into the into that process anyway, right? Um, without without maybe the egoic temptation there that I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one who does everything, right? There's a there's a kind of self-canceling there that I, I appreciate in, in terms of being able to approach it both in a really fully embodied, dedicated way and a way that nevertheless remains humble and that this is you know only ever as you were saying john a service and it seems like building character you know building building character so whatever arises whatever situation your desire is to do the right thing for the people you serve and as you as you grow your character what you serve and who your people are is something that will constantly expand but how can we teach character the embodied bodhisattva vow in a way where we just do it from service and we do it because it's, it is the right thing to do and not to do it would deeply insult our souls and make walking around in our skin a very difficult proposition. Yes. There's a metaphor I used at the Sedona Integral Conference a little while back drawing on Christian metaphors of, of light and salt and leaven. And I really feel like that those are appropriate for, I think, anyone wanting to be a, a change agent and a, you know, a, a servant of the flourishing of, of life is, you know, light is just obviously the illuminating function. What roles can you play to help light be shed in circumstances so that there can be the disclosure, the unfolding of an encounter with being that's meaningful and, and that's clarifying. It doesn't mean coming from a place that I have the ideological right view and I'm going to make everybody see my view. It's I want to serve the conditions of seeing, right? One of the things that's interesting about light is that it absents itself in the presentation, you know, we don't see light. We see what light presents to us. If we saw light, we would see nothing. <laughs> we don't see light. Light light gets out of the way in order that we perceive objects. And so that's this, I think that's an important function, this bodhisattva function of acting in a way that you get out of the way that allows for the seeing. You know, so that's an interesting practice in itself. Salt is something that is preservative and also brings out flavor. So it's really caring for life and, and you know, the evolutionary emergence of the whole biosphere and of all different cultures that we want to do something that's protective and preservative of, of the, you know, the fruits of life. And that in the application of it brings out the unique flavors of each that all can be savored, right? That's dedicated to the, the savoring of the, the richness of the flavors of life. Yeah, I would say purifies toxicity too. Yes. You know, what what a great metaphor that salt is for that. At the same time, it's doing all these things for life. It's cleaning out the infection. It's cleaning out the, the part that will eventually destroy the whole system if it's not taken care of. Beautiful. Yeah, that that's great. Yeah. And for leaven, obviously it's it's to make things rise. It's to make things unfold. It's to serve flowering, right? It's to serve what what you know Roy Boscar would call eudaimonia, 
the well-being of each for the well-being of all and the well-being of all for the well-being of each. Beautiful. Mm, that's the nicest definition of eudaimonia time on here, I've heard, yeah. yeah. And Bruce, so I, I think I now have a, a sense of the vision of the of leadership that you hold, that leaders for our time, big leaders, leaders who are going to address the great challenges, are going to be people who are actualized, who have some contemplative practice, who who have an aspiration to serve in this self-negating way uh, that John pointed to. Well, how, okay, you're in this beautiful position of creating a training program and instantiating this, this new and very wonderful vision. What are the elements you're going to, how are you going to do this? How do you turn out these people? This is really one of the questions. I I was struck the other day, you know, about both what a wonderful opportunity this feels like and and what a real responsibility and challenge it is. And, and it's, a, it's an open experiment. I really feel like the kind of teachers, the kind of, you know, facilitators and guides that we're gathering for the program are really, you know, beautiful, exceptional people. And, you know, it, it's probably going to be an ongoing thing where we really want to listen to the field broadly, not only in our kind of probably shared communities of integral and metamodern spaces, but well outside of that. I think there's a lot of beautiful stuff happening that is not yet in the orbit of of those communities that needs to be known about. And so I've been doing some work recently to to get in touch with such people. But the constellation of people who will contribute, and I, I believe the quality of the students who are going to be coming in just based on the ones who've applied already, I think they're, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a very rich, experienced encounter between those who are going through and those who are facilitating. That for me embodies what we tried to do at the Krishnamurti schools, which is, you know, the idea of the Krishnamurti school is to live in learning. And that means teacher, student, administrators, everybody is in this practice of exploring our own co becoming trying to get clear on what our conditioning is, what the limitations of our conditioning are, and to mutually inform each other and and to collectively facilitate conditions for mutual growth. Right? So I really feel like there's an opportunity for that to happen among the kinds of teachers who are being invited in and the the kinds of students who are coming. It's in very practical terms, it's it's unfolding over uh, basically a 11-month period, 10 to 11-month period, where there will be in-person resident residencies over a long weekend, alternating months with uh, you know online events, so that there's both time for collective embodied practice and, and establishing a shared field with each other, and you know doing work online and, and in the individual context of our own lives. So. Yeah, the you know the curriculum is is as I mentioned, both trying to encompass individual development, but also engagement with different kinds of lenses and practices that I think you know will serve right leadership in in our time in terms of having scope of vision and sensitivity to the challenges and awareness of of new emerging ways of doing things. I mean. 
we're, we're we have a you know a new module that we've added on regenerative economics that is not going to be just about economic practice but it's going to be very deeply experiential about exploring how do we show up in groups how do we share power in groups and you know in very in, in very deep embodied ways going to be a guiding through that kind of thing as i listen to your the elements you're bringing in here bruce i'm struck by the novelty of several of them and and the gestalt of all of them first you're giving a, a you know information you know about how, how organizations work or whatever and the qualities of leadership and that's that's pretty much standard but you're also giving this transdisciplinary overview or vision and you're also including specific transformative practices and that as far as i know, I know is very rare in any any you know, traditional leadership training program and I'd like to ask you more about that. But then I hear two other things, too, that are unique. First is the the kind of people you're interested in bringing in who are who are people who embody these very qualities you're trying to trying to cultivate in leaders. So there's the kind of transmission uh, that's involved here. But then finally, uh, you're, it's the very nature of the community you're trying to build, which and the Keegan had a term for this. Maybe you can help me. Oh, yes, deliberately developmental organizations, organizations in which the goal is to foster the development of every person in it. And it sounds like that's what you're aiming for. You're you're looking at a leadership training program which is deliberately developmental for everyone. And those are that's a sounds like a really powerful and beautiful combination, which really is aiming not just is imparting information, but in fostering transformation, deep transformation. I'd love to hear about the kinds of practices you see as essential for for cultivating the the leaders who will address the big pictures of our big challenges of our time. And we have you know a suite of things that we're we're going to be bringing together. There is going to be this contemplative element of of self-inquiry which involves both meditative practices but also you know psychological work and shadow work and, and and inquiry around you know psychological dynamics so something like you could find in you know Almas's blending of psychological and, and spiritual approaches so in in conjunction with that there's you know the contemplative piece and the psychological piece but we have somebody who's going to be facilitating trauma release of practices because we anticipate everybody carries some degree of wounding and engaging in deep practice can bring up different issues for people. So there's an element of trauma release experience practice that is going to be going through for everybody to work on. There's going to be an inclusion of practices around um, emotional intelligence. Somebody is one of the person is an instructor will be presenting, they have a very, very rich model of actually attuning to almost an overwhelming amount of shades of emotional process and experience and how to work constructively with that. There are practices of perception, of refining the use of our senses to basically, you know, I think kind of the somatic kind of practices that David Bohm, David Michael Levin, but other kinds of people point to in terms of to be a deep listener 
and to be, you know, uh, somebody who can actually engage in transformative learning and exchange, there's a deep somatic side to that. It's not just a cognitive attitude. It's a, it's a whole bodied kind of thing. So there are practices around opening up the body as a receptive field or container. And there's an element where there's going to be using music and jazz, also embodied Qigong and Zen practice, how, how both of those things show up in leadership, how leadership can manifest through a deep musical intelligence, how it can manifest through Taoist and contemplative intelligence. We have different teachers emphasizing those things. We have people looking at the whole global situation, the, the, the Gaian situation, the crises of the you know, ecosphere and you know, the ecology and new ways to tune into our place on the land and on the earth and to see what's happening on the globe right now as this is you know, Sean Kelly talking about that as an initiatory passage that humanity is going through if we're going to navigate the the crises that are are unfolding we're really concerned about what's going on with ai and all of the things that ai is both going to afford and disrupt the ways that it challenges our even our sense of what being a human is or being a cognitive agent is so there are going to be explorations around you know what's emerging in this sphere that's rapidly changing and what does wise stewardship of that look like and wise relationship with that technology look like? How can technological leaders, how can practitioners, all different kinds of people engage with that? I mentioned the regenerative economics piece and looking at all different kinds of economic models, you know, donut economics and stakeholder economics and post-growth work. And so we're, we're really wanting to take a big look at all of, of these emerging movements in that way. There are different, you know, very practical social steps that can be done in grassroots ways for, you know, affecting change globally, globally oriented local actions that anybody can take to improve conditions and where they're living. Because, you know, I think one of the problems that we're, we're, we're encountering right now is we evolved to have, you know, we, we evolved in certain communities of, of a, a certain size where we, we could be optimally functional. When we get immersed in world spaces that are so large, where it feels like anything you do is such a tiny ripple that you don't matter to the context that you're inhabiting, there's existential crisis around that. There tends to be a loss of agency around that. There tends to be an increase in nihilism around that. If you don't feel how you fit in your context, then life becomes meaningless. So how do we find that balance between recognizing our global participation and our local meaning? And I think that's something that, you know, basically I won't pretend, you know, that our program or or anybody has the whole answer to that. I think that's a growing edge for our species is this emerging global sense of being, but how can it emerge in a way that we still feel grounded and embodied and participant and meaningful and not get lost in that. Bruce, what is the name of this program and how would people get in touch that are interested? It's called the Blue Sky Leaders Program. Yeah, it's it's at the California Institute of Integral Studies. So yeah, if people just Google that, they would find it. Yes, great, great school, but beautiful. And and I'm struck that your vision of leadership involves providing the 
holding space, as you would call it, or closure for people to actualize and foster their capacity for contribution and develop a vision of what contribution is called for and needed and can be in this time. And you're holding the very challenges we face as an initiatory crisis, both a incredible challenges and as a call to something more, uh, to possibility. And that feels a really crucial reframe for our time. Yeah, and it, it seems the the holy challenge for you as a staff, for you as a faculty, you as a teacher, is to to become that kind of leader that you want your students to be. Yes, that you model that, and I say that's a holy challenge because what, how beautiful that you have to up your game. You know, have to. You have to work harder in order to to make this thing not just a, a dry, you know, academic pursuit, but they can actually feel it in you. And I was a I was a wilderness guide for many years, and I took groups of young men and young women, and sometimes not so young, out into the wilderness who were dealing with alcoholism and addiction. And the first part of the journey was for them to learn to trust me. And that I really cared about them. You know, I show them how to, to tie knots, show them how to make their shelter, show them how to make a fire, show them how to poop in the woods or the desert, you know, just all of this basic stuff and not try to, uh, you know, teach them anything other than I'm here to. And it, it takes some skill sets that you need to develop and you can do it really quickly. But here, I'll help you. I'll be with this. And then I found what, once you establish that, then you can get to the hard truths too you know and then you can confront the hard issues that were threatening these guys lives in a way that's like yeah this is hard to hear but i know basically that he cares about me that he loves me so i'll listen you know and i'll consider this it's very it's very touching what you're doing it's great stuff yeah and let me just interpose something here it feels like this is perhaps a a beautiful closure for the leadership and unless there's something else you would like is there something else you would like to add bruce or does this feel like for the leadership this might be a closure good closure i think overall yes it feels like that's a good closure i i really liked what um what you know john brought in there about just yeah. basically the the love and the holy challenge of of holding that loving center and you know that's really valuable and, and one piece of it is although it's not an academic program not leading to a degree it is leading to we have projects that we want everybody to work on and they can be professional or they can be individual it, it'll be up to the person but we want to really we have people who are going to serve a facilitating role that are not just part of the modules teaching but that are walking with the students through the whole thing they're 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 serving this guiding role from front to end to help digest process reflect on and grow fruit out of each encounter in ways that are unique to each individual you know bugenthal talks about that you know existential therapist but he talks about that mountain guides role which is that it's not that you just take people on a path that they have to follow your ABC. 
but you know the landscape. And even though there are places that you don't know, but you know enough about the general landscape that you can be relied on to be a partner through whatever challenges are coming up. And I think that's the ideal for the facilitation is not to think that you have the prescription and not to think that you know it all, but to inhabit a place that you know at least the space well enough that you are there with them as a reliable guide and risk taker um, through whatever is unfolding. Yeah, beautiful. And there's a there's an analogy from psychotherapy and counseling that if you look at the two kinds of kinds of counselors or therapists, there's the the one who is called the basically the has it all together, presents themselves as having it all together, the so-called competent model. And then there's the learning to cope model of therapist who says, yeah, I know that issue. Uh, you know, here's how I've worked with it, kind of what John was talking about in his role. Uh, and the research is crystal clear. The learning to cope model is much more effective. People can relate to it. <laughs> they can't relate to someone who has it all together. No one has it all together. <laughs> it's just us humans slapping along, trying to do the best we can and learn as much as we can. And hopefully with programs such as, and visions such as yours, finding some guidance towards it. Well, Bruce, I'd love to come back now that we have an overview of your vision of leadership. I'd love to come back to the topic we began with, which was the possibility of interreligious practice at this time, because that's such a large practice and such a large possibility that's now available to us. And you've done something that I haven't seen done. You have in your articles, you've mapped out the varieties, are the, 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 different, the different dimensions that have to be considered as one looks at different traditions and entertains the possibility of practicing these. And uh, I'd love to hear about what you see as the different issues that have to be considered here. Yeah, it's a, it's a deep and difficult question, really. One of the things that I've looked at is just how interfaith dialogue and encounters have been typically handled. You know, there are the exclusivist and inclusivist and pluralist approaches. And of course, one would say, my path is the right one. Everything else is is not right, you know, and you draw the clear boundary. Inclusivist says, my path is the best one. And you find a way that the other one can fit in it in some smaller role, typically. Pluralist has been to try to hold multiple paths as valid, but often either it ends up in a kind of fragmenting or incoherent picture, or ultimately it becomes kind of another kind of closet inclusivism, which now is, I have this super abstract category, which all of your plural things belong to, and <laughs> the super ab abstract one is really the real one. So I've I've wrestled with all of those in my own life, and, and, and I actually see, you know, even there's room for the exclusivism, and, and you, can, you can see that in, you know, the Dalai Lama takes that stance in some way. If you want this realization, you need to do this path. And if you understand it from a point of view of the inactive and the generative enclosure, I accept that. This way of practicing, this way of bringing things together, this alchemical process can result in a kind of 
flowering or fruition that is unique to that tradition, to that sadhana. But it doesn't mean that that's the only flowering that can happen that's worthwhile or fruitful or nourishing or world-serving. So there is kind of like the holding of the exclusive. Like if you really want this fruit and you really want to understand it, enter our circle, do these practices, find out what happens, right? So in, in that way, that the boundary can still be maintained to some degree. If you, you know, the fidelity to that boundary will help create the conditions, the generative enclosure conditions for the kind of fruit that the teachers within that tradition point to. I would say, if you're asking me about different things that we have to consider, one of the things that, and I'd love to hear from both of you, your wisdom on this is in making room in this way for multiple paths, there is the danger of moving into a kind of uh, engineering mindset or an instrumentalism where you're only relating to the divine, you're only relating to whatever religions point to as some kind of engineered effect of, of, of human efforts that I think diminishes what is usually meant by the divine if you only think of it in terms of this is just the outcome of my recipe, right? So I, I want to hold both of those things at once, that there's a way that these kinds of practices are recipes that lead to certain kind of fruits. But I want to poke a hole in that too, because otherwise it becomes kind of a, a again, a, you know, a, a new kind of humanism where we're centering ourselves in a way that whatever is ultimate is really just a subset of our own efforts. And I think proper religious attitude wants that bubble burst. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I really appreciate you holding both both perspectives. And for me, it's, well, I would say, as you were speaking, I was realizing, well, okay, how do I, how do I hold, where do I situate myself in these possibilities you offered? And how do I wrestle with the challenge of holding these things? And I realized for me, it's a little easier to hold them all because my foundational assumption is mystery. That everything is is at bottom. It's bottomless, endless <laughs> mystery. And I also realized for the first time, so it was very valuable, that that can be a cop out. That allows me to slide and avoid dealing with some of the tensions and issues you you are pointing to. And so, uh, once again, it's a both and. How to hold? Yes, it's all bottomless mystery and there are still some real challenges and issues to be worked with. But coming to your specific point about the the value of holding both an engineering perspective, I do these practices and A or B or C is likely to arise with the perspective that this game is a hell of a lot bigger than our little <laughs> little efforts. I think it uh, it helps to hold a bigger view of causality that we think of A causing B, but in this case we're working with the with the divine or the absolute. It's more like well, we A may open a doorway or a possibility for something far vaster than anything we can imagine to happen. Hmm. I I would say the hole that you poke in. That's the portal for grace. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's a Christian concept, but that's where I come from, you know, that, that that you can do everything you have to do. You know, you have to 
have grit and, you know, and be tough and do the practices. But ultimately, when the transformation happens, when the insight happens, when the awakening happens, there's a great sense of deep humility and it's grace. And there's a, there's a mercy and compassion coming from a place higher than all your little piddly efforts could take you. And uh, I rely on that a lot. And I wanted to ask you, what is your, I didn't want to get away without this question. What does your practice look like today, Bruce? What do you actually do on a daily basis? I still am probably most involved in TSK and various practices from Tibetan tradition. That's where I look most often through some different encounters and experiences. I I have felt kind of old theistic stirrings. So occasionally I will I will lean in those directions in terms of more of a dialogical relationship with being and an opening for grace, as you say. A lot of it is around there's there's a couple things I'm doing actually very practically. One is, you know, inquiry-based practices. And I've developed some practices of my own. And then I've also drawn from Dzogchen and, and TSK traditions where I really try to tune into different dimensions of the fabric of my own experience through different pathways and and facilitate deeper insight into those dimensions and then integration of those dimensions. Just one example, and this is a very simple one, but it's one I love to do when I go walking. You know, in time-space knowledge, and you know, even though this is not one of the most advanced practices in TSK, it's one that I just really resonate with and that actually I feel opens me up in an existential way, which is just to reflect on time, space, and knowledge, each as a dimension of the experiential field that you're moving through. So what that would look like is, as I'm walking, I might first open up to space, where I would feel the space around me. I would feel the space in me. I would begin kind of experiencing what's different or the same between the space in and around me. And that usually opens up a kind of a more spacious, open, interconnected feeling. I experience all objects as basically different ways that space is dancing. That the closer you get to any object, really it's it's just it's a ripple. You know, it's a, it's an eddy in space. It's a it's a pattern that's spacious itself. And the boundaries are not. They're, they're permeable and they're translucent. And so that meditation on space, there are different kind of, you know, even psychological practices that are, are used along these lines, open holding kind of practices. So that's space. Time is you begin to attune to both becoming and delineation. The fact that there is any differentiation among objects in my field of experience is the act of time. It's this drawing of distinction and boundary, and and every every object can be experienced as a holding and a flowering and a moving of a, a temporal way of being. Time here experienced as the creativity of being. When we think about impermanence, there's both impermanence as going away and impermanence as constantly arising. And there's Every object for me is this experience of going away and arising, always, right? So there's a way to tune into your field as this whole play of distinction and going away and arising in dynamic creative expression. 
And then there's knowing, knowledge. And so you can tune into your field as this is an aspect of my awareness. These are these are appearances in the open witnessing function. This is there's a way to be intimate with everything in a felt way that there's like a this is knowing for me is the feeling of being right where you feel the field you feel the the spaciousness you feel the becoming in a way that is a self-recognizing a self-luminosity so you move through those three things and then you hold the whole thing at once as this open serene explosion in vast openness of particular forms that are shot through with knowing, <laughs> right? So it's it's a it's a very particular way of experiencing your field that to me leads to feelings of deep integration of me with my environment and me with myself and opening of points of tension that I usually have. So for me, that's a regular walking practice is to enter into that field and in more recent years, I found ways to do that with other elements, but that's a basic one. Wow. Well, Very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. I at least read, if I can't say studied, but I read and tried to understand the time space knowledge books years back and it went totally over my head. And yeah, it makes more, much more sense in your, your uh, description than my study of it did. So thank you. Lots of places we could go here, but you started on pointing to the different different goals of these traditions. And you mentioned a, a Almas who uh, or Amid, who we have had the privilege of having on the podcast a couple of times. And one of the things that struck me about his recent work or his later vision is a non-finality. That is, most traditions, as I understand them, point towards some final realization, some experience, some state of consciousness, or some way of being as the final attainment. And his view is a much rarer one, which is, I think, found in a few places like Zen Master Dogen, the idea that each opening or awakening can be a portal to a further opening or awakening. And for me, that was very helpful because I have such a striving, attaining personality type that it, it released some of that. It was like, oh, there's no end. Well, of course, of course, I'm not going to reach the end. So I'd love to hear you give your reflections on, on that general topic. Yeah, that's really a, a resonant one for me also. And I appreciate that in, in all mass and a couple of my touch points for that. Of course, I, I think evolution you know our our understanding of evolution wilbur has tried to explore that to some degree what is the impact of an evolutionary view on our understanding of enlightenment and i think that's a really key question related to that and something that i i resonate with a lot is raimon panikar's notion of sacred secularity and there's a couple meanings to that but the seculum basically means the realm of time. And that's one way of looking at it is the realm of time and becoming. It's not the timeless, you know, static or open being. It's the realm of becoming. But he talks about sacred secularity, meaning that in our time, you know, for a while, theology tended to privilege the background and the static and to, and to consider the becoming world as lesser. And he says, in our time, there seems to be a recognition of the sacredness 
of becoming itself and the open-endedness and the kind of the, the, the non-dual immediacy that's present in becoming that doesn't need to envision any final resting place. And so for me, that's that's also how I I look at this, basically because it's been my own experience in terms of having some fruit of contemplative practice become not a final thing in itself, but like a flavor for whatever keeps going on, right? And an opportunity for whatever keeps going on. And I think if we look at our, from our privileged vantage that we have now to be able to see the sweep of historical unfolding of religious traditions across many lineages and across many centuries, I think we enter into dialogue with that unfolding. And the this is, you know, language that Michael Dowd uses in, in the science and evolutionary context, when he talks about the story of the changing story. And I think that's really in a place that that I feel I've come to inhabit is that the story we inhabit is the story of a changing story in that we recognize the utility of putting to language whatever we see and putting shape to whatever we see, but that dimension of mystery, that dimension of the indetermination of being, not that it's non-determined, but that it's indetermined. I mean, it's never finally determined, and it's indetermining. It's in the process of being determined ongoingly. To me, that sense of participation with that process is what really feels like home for me. Also, I had to get in this, so we don't have much time, but how has your your scholarship, your study, your writing, and your speaking about what you've learned on this journey of of exquisite scholarship, I guess it's the only way I can say it, how has that affected, uh, how has that been part of your sadhana, and how would you how would you describe that? There is a term that Henrik Skolomowski uses, again, for science, that he calls the yoga of objectivity. And he looks at the scientific method and the empirical method as one practice of union. It's one way that we can make contact with reality, but it's only one way. And there are other ways to do it. And that are you know more artistic or poetic or participatory or psychological or phenomenological and you know other kinds of dimensions. The reason I'm I'm saying that is most of my life I regarded myself as a poet and a storyteller and a nature mystic and a musician. I was not a scholar. That stuff was abstract and dry. And I didn't want to go there. I wanted to live in all of those dimensions. And in fact, I kind of looked down on Western philosophy. It was Wilbur's opening up of his post-metaphysical turn where I really thought, I, I want to really understand what's behind this post-metaphysical turn that I started looking at Western philosophy about 15 years ago. And it began a deep dive in a journey for me. And so for me, the wrestling with philosophy the entering into academic spheres to try to write academically and to explore those things. I've approached it not as, you know, kind of like I've approached it as one spiritual practice among many, one artistic practice among many. So for me, 
that's one thing that I, I've, I've wanted to emphasize to my students. You know, in the kind of programs that I've taught it at, at JFK, most of our students are experientially focused and they don't want philosophy. That's abstract. That's in the head. And they want the embodied and the felt. And one thing that I've come to discover, you know, it's like Lakoff and Johnson pointing to that all of our metaphors, so much of our abstract thinking is actually rooted in our animal embodiment and our immersion in the biosphere, in our, our neurology, in our, our muscle structure. How we learn to move translates itself. It gets exacted into how we learn to think. And so in one way, philosophy and academic work is just a way to dance on the subtle plane. It's just a way to hike and to climb and to move on the subtle plane in, in the thought, in the imaginal space. And so for me, I, I experience a continuity there. And thinking can be a yoga. Thinking can be an art. Thinking can be a way of participating with reality rather than the cut off at the neck kind of thing that people worry about, right? So that's that's how I relate to it. So it's been it's been an avenue of practice and and yoga and that kind of thing for me. And Bruce, this will probably need to be our last question because I know you have a hard stop coming up. But it sounds as though you're describing yourself as a jnana yogi, a yogi who uses the intellect in the service of of awakening. Does that feel right? Yes, I, I think. That's definitely part of it. You know, I, I also love art still, and I do other kinds of things, and I love stillness contemplation and those kind of things. But to the degree that I have an academic practice, it's that jnani yogi way of relating to it. Yeah, you said that beautifully, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And I certainly would not want or even attempt <laughs> to put you into one box, Bruce, you uh, you spill over all categories wonderfully, and all disciplines, and and modalities, and ways of knowing. So it's just a delight to to dialogue with you and get a, a sense of your multifaceted, multidimensional explorations and the fields you've ranged over and brought coherence to in a very beautiful way. And and the way you are addressing some of the great issues of our time and trying not only to understand them, but to help foster people who can contribute optimally and become leaders for our, our time and for dealing with these great issues. Uh, Bruce, it's just been a delight to be with you and to have this conversation. I feel wonderfully excited and nourished and delighted all all at once. You must come back sometime, okay? We can we can work that out. I'd love to have you talk more about this stuff. I would love that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bruce. I I just want to say in closing that, you know, I'm a deep admirer of both of your work. And this morning I sat in the chair before I turned on the computer feeling nervous and excited but I really feel rewarded and nourished by the exchange with you and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Ditto, ditto. Thank you so much, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, thank you. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are.
and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.